Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as Silicon Valley's least diplomatic person, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. This week, we're running a bonus episode of Recode Decode because we have a very special guest. Today in the red chair is Margreta Vestager, the Commissioner for Competition for the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the EU. Commissioner Vestager was formerly a member of the Danish Parliament from 2001 to 2014. Commissioner Vestager has been somewhat of a thorn in the side of U.S. tech companies, which are used to getting exactly what they want from U.S. regulators, not from Commissioner Vestager. She brought formal antitrust charges against Google three times in 2015, something her predecessor had been exploring for several years prior. And most recently, she brought a case against Apple for paying low, low taxes in Ireland and is looking to recover almost $15 billion in past taxes. Welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and obviously an honor too. Yeah, exactly. We you were here. You're here in Washington, correct? Mm-hmm. What are you doing here now? And then I want to get into your background because I think people don't know. Everyone in Silicon Valley is aware of you. Well, basically, I come to Washington a couple of times a year, mm-hmm. uh, sort of on a strictly business basis, talk to my counterparts of uh, the Federal Trade Commission or the DOJ, mm-hmm. uh, give an occasional talk, uh, very often in a lawyer or academic environment. And when I'm here, of course, take the opportunity to talk to people. Right. Regulators, other regulators. Like That'd be other regulators. That would be media. That would be people like you, mm-hmm. um, because I think that... Any start of, uh, of finding out new things and try to breach uh, differences is, of course, that we talk. Right. How do you find Washington? Oh, I'm loving it. Do you? Why yes. is that? No one says that. Well, because I have a, a trail that I jog while I'm here. And I think <laughs> that the Reflecting Pond and the Washington uh-huh. uh, Memorial and, and, and the Lincoln Memorial is uh, some of the most beautiful sort very of moving. man-made places. It's surprising, doesn't it? Doesn't it surprise you how much it moves you when you see them? And the thing is, I think it was uh, not last time, but the previous time I was here, it has been snowing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was running in the morning. There was no one there. And there was just this new snow that had fallen. It was still dark. Mm-hmm. And the Lincoln Memorial, it just, you know, it took me, you know, so I got goosebump. And and I felt, you know, this very strong presence of U.S. history mm-hmm. and American culture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very nice. It's interesting. It's interesting you say that. Um, I have a lot. Of, I, when I told tech people I was interviewing you, they had a lot of questions. Okay. And so they're very interested in what you do think of American, America and American companies. But let's talk a little bit about your background. I think people don't realize you, you entered politics very young, at a very young age, at 29. Is that correct? Well, actually, even even before that, but uh, I, when I was very young, I took no interest in party politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sort of uh, line of interest was how can you be part of and influence the society that you live in? Right. You were an economics major, correct? Yes, I was. And, and then I got sort of drawn into sort of some more conventional politics mm-hmm. in the Social Liberal Party in Denmark. But uh, but my background, my both my father and my mother being uh, ministers in the Danish uh, People's Church, mm-hmm. sort of you know gave this 
very fundamental value that you should take part in your community. Right, right. And uh, did you w- always want to do that? Did you want to be? Uh, oh, no, no, uh, no, no, no. It's just a matter of me uh, not being able to say no. So what did that give you, your parents both being Lutheran ministers, is yes. that correct? Yes. What, did that, what did that instill in you in terms of just being part of a, a, a larger community or doing, you know, Denmark is a very different country from the U.S. and there's a great social contract going on there with people. Yes, and it's a society with a very short distance between people in power and the electorate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you feel very strongly that you represent something who have a real interest in, in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, where I grew up, um, it was a very open home. Mm-hmm. You would find anyone who would come there, people who needed marriage counseling, people who wanted to get married mm-hmm. uh, if there's been a sudden death people who were very poor, people who were very well off, they would all come and be part of a very sort of lively uh, home where you found a lot of discussions, uh, but also a lot of engagement. Right. And then you moved quickly after college into or university Mm -hmm. um, into the party that you were part of. And you did a variety of jobs when you were there, correct? Yes. You did. Could you go into that a little bit? Well, I was both the uh, sort of the organizational uh, head of uh, of the party, uh, I did a number of, of different things in in that uh, doing that, and then I became in '98 the minister of uh, education mm-hmm. and ecclesiastical affairs. Mm-hmm. Then we lost the election in 2001 and became part of the opposition. Then 2007, I became also the political head of uh, our You're party. Very powerful. Well, it very much depends. Danish politics is very, very different from yeah, U.S. politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was trying to watch Borgen last night, which yes. is supposedly partially based on you a little bit. Yes, and the thing is that actually it's quite a, a nice and accurate portrait mm-hmm. of uh, of Danish politics and I think also sort of the Scandinavian atmosphere when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of people appreciate it because it, it's another look upon politics than what you get from House of Cards. Right, yeah. Well, that's how our politics works. <laughs> We're always murdering people right and left. That must be a horrible show to see from somewhere else, imagining it, watching it. Well, it was a little too dark for me anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't pushed anyone in front of a train lately. No. Okay. Um, so when you were in government, you, you did a lot of economic policy. Mm-hmm. And one of them was, at one point, you were cutting benefits mm-hmm. at one point, which was quite controversial in Denmark. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because people sort of see, in Silicon Valley at least, see you as not that, like the idea of, you know, a more, you were more tough than most Danish politicians. Well, what was important for us was to make sure that the Danish economy was sustainable, mm-hmm. that we could sort of stay in charge of our our spending and our debts in order not to run into a situation where, you know, other people would, would want to take over. Sure. So we did away on a very, very long transition period with sort of a, a pre-retirement scheme, not for people who were you know, run down by the job they were doing, but people who could work but who were able to retire quite early around the the age of, I think, 60 or something like that. So gradually we did away with that. And now we have one of the lowest unemployment rates among senior uh, members of the working community. Uh, I think the most controversial thing was that we shortened the, the period where you can get unemployment benefit from four years to, to two. Mm-hmm in order to sort of challenge the labor market to be more open. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because one of the worst things that can happen, at least in the Danish society, is the long-term unemployment. 
it gets more and more difficult to get back to create jobs in a job situation. Mm-hmm. And what we see is that also on your self-esteem, you look upon yourself, your skills, your competences, actually the the damaging effects uh, begin to take place already after six months. Mm -hmm. We thought, or from our part, it was of the best of intentions, but for quite obvious reasons by some, it was seen as a very hostile uh, Mm -hmm. act towards people who who were unemployed for a period of time. Right. So let's fast forward to going on to the European Commission. Obviously, you could have been prime minister, you could have been anything. And, And why did you want to take this job? And you started off in a different job there. Well, the thing was that I had been a a legislator in, in different positions for more than 20 years. And I found that it would be, you know, an amazing privilege to work more with enforcement. Mm-hmm. Because I, to a still larger degree, I had this feeling that we put a lot of effort into uh, creating new legislation but too little effort into implementation Mm -hmm. and too little effort into enforcing. Right. And I think it takes, you know, it takes a lot of political leadership actually to implement Mm -hmm. and to enforce new legislation because this is when we change. Right, right. Well, you haven't been shy about that at all. You jumped right in when Mm -hmm. you were the competition job. It's called the Commissioner of Competition. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? Because other people feel that it means different things from from your point of view. Well, to me, it means uh, making sure that everyone has a fair chance of making it, Mm -hmm. to keep a level playing field, to make sure that you are challenged by uh, quality, new products, prices, the services that you can provide, Mm -hmm. so that you have a fair chance of making it. No guarantees, of course, but that you have a fair chance of making it even if you're a small company, big company, European national, foreign, publicly owned, privately owned, uh, so that citizen experience that the market is fair and open. Mm-hmm. Now, you have taken, let's, let's go to the topics that you've been dealing, mm-hmm. enforcing, because you have been, in the, you could call yourself the enforcer, which is which is something that's irked Silicon Valley a lot. And even in an interview I did with uh, President Obama, he talked about protectionism and things like that. We'll get to that in a mm-hmm. second. But I'd like to sort of go through some of the actions you've taken because there's been a lot. And a lot of them are aimed at Silicon Valley tech companies. And they're sort of um, – they've hit back pretty hard at you at the same time. I guess let's go backwards, I guess. Apple. Tell me about Apple. Well, in Europe, we have uh, three tools when it comes to, to fair competition. Mm-hmm. One is antitrust. Mm-hmm. One is merger control. And the third is state aid control. Mm -hmm. And the third you don't have in the States. In the very beginning of the European community, our founding fathers found that no specific company should be able to outcompete other companies with taxpayers' money in their back. So these are special tax breaks. These are special tax breaks. They are selective. They give you an advantage which is not open to other companies. Mm And, uh, and this is the case in, uh, in the Apple case, mm-hmm. that we find that through two tax rulings, Ireland has enabled Apple to be taxed very, very lightly on the profits uh, that they themselves I made in Europe. 50 euros and every million dollars yeah, in profit. Made in Europe and booked in, in Ireland. Booked in Ireland. So one of the, you said if taxes are not being paid by some, then they have to be paid by others, and that is why... It is not fair competition when some member states hand out selective tax benefits. Now, Ireland has a reason for doing this. They want to attract Apple, and uh, and they have a number of U.S. companies. It's actually well known for it. They look at these, and I know Ireland is 
is opposing what you're doing, mm-hmm. they look at these as ways to attract investment and jobs and things like that. How do you, what do you say when they say that to you? Well, I say, well, you do that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Ireland has the most attractive uh, corporate tax level in Europe. It's mm-hmm. 12.5%. 12.5%. And uh, that in combination with having access to a single market of 500 million potential customers, mm-hmm. uh, very good infrastructure, also digital infrastructure, very skilled population, both in Ireland but also in general in Europe, mm-hmm. very high quality of R&D. So the reasons to do business in Europe is piling up, but tax avoidance should not be one of those reasons. It shouldn't be a tool. To no. Because tax breaks have been going on forever for lots and lots of companies in, here in the United States and different states when they move there and things like that. Yeah, but I think you also have sort of a different culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, or at least I've been told, that mm-hmm. it's much more common that you negotiate your tax arrangements in the state where you have sure. your headquarters or your activities. Or you mo- want to move it to. And it's not the same thing in Europe. Because? I think, well, we have another tradition and another culture, uh, maybe also a slightly higher level of uh, transparency. Mm-hmm. And as I said, we have a very long standing tradition for looking into whether some companies are getting uh, selective advantages not open to the rest of the business community. Would you be surprised that they would give Apple, a company like Apple, better advantages? Or do you feel like everyone should get the same? Because Apple's obviously a high profile company. It- products are well known across the world and they they tend to go in places and get better deals than other people. Well, I think that any company should compete on on the quality of their products, mm-hmm. the prices, uh, the novelties that they can produce, uh, the services. And I do hope that companies grow on that basis uh, because that would be fair competition. Mm-hmm. If you're in a situation where you pay uh, or your effective tax rate is so much lower Almost zero. than any other company... Well, then obviously you have a uh, a much better position when it comes to compete with, uh, with prices, and, with prices like and everything else. Right. So we, now it was really interesting because Tim Cook is not really known for being outspoken uh, or, or very difficult. He can, I'm sure he's difficult to you, but um, he said it's total political crap. You saw this quote. They just picked a number from I don't know where. Were you expecting that response from Apple? Well, I don't do that kind of predictions mm-hmm. uh it was what well, you're uh, thinking about if you're gonna wait i think was it 14 billion dollars yeah, but the thing is that well it is obvious when you do casework like this mm-hmm. uh that both the, the country in question and the company in question uh they disagree right the u.s uh, treasury did the same because they want the money also correct yes but we can come back yeah. to that okay but the thing is that any decision that we take in the commission uh can be appealed to the european courts sure. mm-hmm and uh, that is a obvious reasons for doing sort of the casework based on facts and the evidence of the case. Mm-hmm. But also in itself, I think to do a, a robust investigation based on the fact of the case, well, that is the value that's what has been going on for, for decades mm-hmm. by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it is very important that you do not let the politics of the day or party politics or mm-hmm. affiliation influence that. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when you want competition on the merits, then you have to base your casework on facts. Right. So what, can you walk us through how you decided to aim at Apple? Was it just an egregious example from your opinion or what was the... Well, actually, it was my predecessor yes. uh, who opened the That's case. Right. And, uh, Several of them were like that. Yeah. And he was able to do that because of information that came out through hearings in the U.S. Senate. In the U.S. Senate, right. 
because it is no secret that we've been doing state aid control for decades. Mm -hmm. What was secret was the tax rulings and the Apple numbers. Mm -hmm. Because back then there was very little transparency as to uh, how the company was organized, what they generated of profits and how they were booked and taxed. So I don't think it was possible to do the case before the the U.S. Senate hearing started because that sort of gave the concerns that my predecessor then acted upon to open the case. To open the case. And you've been carrying them out, yes. which is really interesting. So the U.S. Treasury also opposed what you're doing, largely because they want the money, want the money repatriated to the United States. How do you look at that, their objections? Well, we have two different tax systems. Not that I in any detail know the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, tax system, but you have a more sort of a global approach. Mm -hmm. Where in Europe, we would think that uh, profits are to be taxed where profits are generated. Right, in Europe. Uh, And here you talk about profits being generated in Europe and booked by Apple themselves in Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why we think they should also be taxed uh, mm-hmm. in Europe. Then very often you would have uh, tax treaties to make sure that you do not have double taxation, sure. that you get a tax credit when you pay taxes in, in other countries. But then again, it is important to make sure that those tax treaties do not then enable double non-taxation mm-hmm. uh, because they actually have the opposite aim. Mm-hmm. So where does it go next from here with Apple? Are you in negotiations with them, the U.S. Treasury Department? No, the next thing to happen is for for Ireland to themselves to calculate uh, the unpaid taxes, Mm -hmm. for the unpaid taxes to be recovered, put in an ESCO account, closed account. Uh, And then the Irish have said that they will appeal the case. And then, of course, the court will start its proceedings. And where is Apple in this? What do they need to do? Well, that depends very much on themselves. But for us, since what we do in this third tool of, uh, of competition law enforcement we deal with the government. It's it's uh, the government. It is the state to whom we direct uh, the decision. What did you, when you were doing this, obviously this is the, the most famous company in the world, one of them, one of the most famous companies in the world. Some people called you a superheroine for doing it. Others, not so much. It's sort of the opposite. What kind of political pressure are you under when you pull out the big names like this, where you go after these companies? Well, the thing is that we try to, you know, stay sort of clear of the politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we cannot allow that to interfere with the casework. Mm-hmm. But you didn't pick just any company. Apple, you must be aware. No, but the thing is that also we have taken decisions on, on Fiat, the European car company, mm-hmm. and Starbucks, and the Belgian scheme where a number of European uh, mm-hmm. multinationals were involved. And to me, the important thing is that citizens find that someone is looking after that not only most companies, but all companies mm-hmm. do pay their taxes. Have you met with Apple? Not after the decision, Not no. after the decision, no. All right, we're here with Commissioner Margreta Vestager mm-hmm. of the European Commission. She is the competition commissioner. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. When we get back, we're going to talk about data, which is the big issue that Silicon Valley has with the European Commission, and there's been a lot of wrangling over it. Today's show is sponsored by Casper, which has made a perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers to save you money. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Shipping to both the U.S. and Canada is completely free, and there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. If you don't love your Casper mattress, they'll pick it up and refund everything. These mattresses are made in America. 
Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Stop paying for the mattress industry's inflated prices. Go to casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Peter Kafka, and I am the host of Recode Media. Every week, I sit down with some of the smartest and most interesting people in media, people like Daring Fireball's John Gruber, New Yorker columnist Malcolm Gladwell, Full Frontal host Samantha B. These are smart, fun, unscripted interviews, because they're interviews, that's the whole point, with people who make stuff that you see, hear, and read every day. Probably want to know more about them, right? No problem. Listen to Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We will see you there. We're back with Margareta Vestager, Europe's Commissioner for Competition, who has become a controversial figure in Silicon Valley for a bunch of things, including putting, uh, declaring that Apple owed $15 billion, $14 billion in back taxes and possible interest um, and some other things. But one of the areas uh, that she's really been tough on with Silicon Valley, with Google, Facebook and others is data. Data is a big issue all over the world. Privacy is also a big issue. Um, you brought formal antitrust charges against Google on a number of issues around Android, around, around its services, uh, antitrust issues around its services, and then most recently about its advertising practices. Talk a little bit about going after Google in Europe. Well, actually, the thing is that what we are aiming at is is a certain behavior. Mm-hmm. And the cases started a long time ago uh, with my predecessor, uh, you, again, are the yes, only one again. enforcing it? it. it, it no, it takes some time. <laughs> like this, you push the, the case work now, but the yeah. thing is that what the commission acted upon then was complaints from a number of both European and U.S. companies mm-hmm. who found that uh, Google practices were harmful uh, for them. Mm-hmm. So now we have uh, three different cases, and we have sent what we call a statement of objection in, mm-hmm. in all three cases. First one is a case where we found that Google used their dominance in general search to promote themselves in a neighboring in market. Other services. In other uh, Shopping services. Shopping comparison. Mm-hmm. I think that triggered a number of the complaints that they found that it was very difficult to compete in a market where Google was so dominant. Second case is a case about um, advertising. How can, can, can sort of intermediaries be in this ve- very valuable market? Uh, where Google put a, a number of restrictions as to where should our ads be put, uh, what number of them. Mm-hmm. And then we have the third case, which is a case where we have found that Android uh, is being used as a tool to enable Google to stay dominant also when our search becomes mobile. Mobile search. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Android is, in, in my view, a very, very interesting operating system. It's mm-hmm. open source Uh, A lot of good things can be said about it. So it's not the Android system as such. It is the way that it is used with manufacturers of uh, original equipment in order seemingly to make sure that when you open the box and you get the first-hand experience, it's a Google experience, and then... Why look for something else? Right, right. Well, I think that was the point of them inventing Android. I believe for to keep search going in the mobile environment. I think they don't really not say that because I think they had issues around the desktop search dying. Oh, yes, but I think everyone has an issue mm-hmm. with desktop uh, research. Well, Google would uh, have most of the issue because it's the, the core of their business is that. Yeah, but for, I think everyone is thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, citizens very much appreciate it mm-hmm. that now you can be on the go. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. But I think that they uh, – so you're saying they're enabling it so that they get the advantage again. It's all it's, about It's advantage. a great thing. But, but uh, the thing is that if you then adopt a behavior – 
where you you do something which is not by the book in Europe mm -hmm. in order to stay dominant mm -hmm. and not you know let your sort of your competitive edge mm -hmm. make you stay dominant, mm -hmm. but your behavior. That is that are so two what, different things. What are they doing precisely from your point of view? That, that that they're doing that they feel that they're innovative and they're the best. They have ninety percent of the market in Europe now. I think it's something like that. Oh, but obviously they are innovating. You mm -hmm. know, I am so old that I can remember the internet before <laughs> Google search. So obviously, yeah, for for a number of reasons, they have. It's, it's an amazing company that mm -hmm. has produced amazing products that have enabled a number of amazing uh, and very good things. Mm -hmm. But what we have found in in the Android case is that for uh, since it's uh, it's open source, you can do an Android fork. But it seems to be very, very difficult to find a manufacturer that would actually produce a phone for you to put your Android, Android fork. Mm -hmm. And we have found that it was uh, very difficult to get, uh, for instance, the Google search without also taking more uh, Google services on board to have a Gmail full Google suite so that when you open your box and you have the out-of-the-box experience, it is a Google experience, and mm -hmm. then it's a one-way Google street. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to find a, a turn uh, mm -hmm. to go somewhere else. Do you consider them to be like Microsoft back in the operating system days where Microsoft had dominance on the desktop? Uh, no, actually not. Of course, you can find similarities between the cases, but since so many things have changed mm -hmm. before then, I think there are a number of differences as well. Such as? Also, to the environment where they work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's two different companies with uh, different uh, behavior, different corporate cultures. Mm -hmm. And also the way we behave as customers and the competitive landscape is very different from what it was. Did you find uh, you, the U.S. had looked into these issues, similar issues, mm -hmm. and passed? What did you think of that when they did that? With the FTC, all kinds of government agencies. And then they, to me, they rolled over quite a bit on a lot of these issues. Well, and said they couldn't find proof, they couldn't. But but it is not for for me or or my services mm -hmm. to redo uh, what they do. And actually, a number of things are, are different. Mm -hmm. uh, also, in the Google market share in the U.S. compared to to Europe. Mm -hmm. So even though we work together very very closely on a number of cases, of mm -hmm. course, we completely accept if we do things and they don't. Mm -hmm. Do you? Um, when we get into this idea of data, I think a lot of it is. What if they paid for their services? What if people paid for services from these people? Um, would that assuage the problem if you got the Google service and then you got to pick what you wanted and paid for it? Oh, but you do pay. Yes, you do. Yeah, usually <laughs> through advertising in yes, other ways. You yeah. do pay. Uh, you do pay either by looking at, at ads or by, by giving up your data. Mm-hmm. I'm an economist so much that I know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. No, absolutely not. Uh, so you pay with one currency or another, mm -hmm. either cents, euro cents, or, or euro cents, or you pay with your data, or mm -hmm. you pay with the advertisement that you accept. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you pay. Right. And I think people become more and more aware of the fact that their personal data actually do uh, have a value. It's being used by Facebook and Google and yes. Apple and Snapchat now and others. So people realize this to a completely different level. And what we see in Europe is that a huge proportion of citizens find that they're not in control. Mm -hmm. They distrust the companies to protect their data. And I think that is very bad mm -hmm. because then, then there is a risk of, uh, of withdrawing from all the benefits mm -hmm of our digital economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and in order to build up trust, I think it is very, very important that we enforce privacy rules, 
that we get privacy by design mm-hmm. uh, in new services so that privacy is not just an add-on, but it is the very basic in, in the way you do the services. Why do you not believe individuals can make these decisions themselves for themselves? I mean, that's the U.S. argument is that or the U.S. company's argument is that individuals should be able to make these decisions for themselves and regulators in Europe should not be the ones making that for them, mouthing mm, there. Yes, but I, I think then we have different traditions because in, in Europe we have had a, a single market mm-hmm. which has been sort of framed with uh, democratic decision-making from the very beginning. Democratic decision-making on safety standard, environmental standards, um, consumer protection, privacy uh, protection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So for us, it's a very strong tradition to say, well, as a small individual in this gigantic market, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to know everything yourself because there are laws to protect you, mm-hmm. so that you can trust uh, the market and the services that you use to be there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for us, it's part of the trust in the market that we have this regulation. Mm-hmm. And the European Parliament and our Council passed the legislation some months ago, which will be in, in place by 2018, which will be simpler but also stronger in order to, to enable citizens to feel that they're in control. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine there's ever not a gulf existing? Because the, the, the privacy issues in Europe, are much they have much stronger protections. There's much different cultural attitudes towards protections. And yet they've all embrace these digital technologies largely right now from the U.S. Is there is there a place of, is there a, a center place or not, or just that they have to live by your rules when they're operating in Europe? Well, I think you have more, more things that uh, play at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, because you'd find that some U.S. companies are doing better in Europe than they do here. Mm-hmm. A lot of Europeans embrace these companies and find that they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from Denmark, and, and there you find it, I think, more than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Highly digital the community, old as well as young people uh, on Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, Snapchat, whatever. Another company you're looking into, yeah. the data well, around WhatsApp. Anyone, you know, excited about the new opportunities. Mm-hmm. At the same time, well, then you find that there must be, you know, reasonable protection that I, I own my pictures, my data, that I can control them. Mm-hmm. Who are they given to and what are they used for? And uh, I think that comes from uh, from a very strong European culture of uh, a wanting to know that, well, I know who I am and I know my relationship with the people who sells me things and I would like to be in control. Why do you think these companies are doing things? Some Are they malevolent or do they just, they just want to grab every piece of data possible in order to facilitate their businesses? How do you look at them as a, as a, as a regulator? Well, I think it's a completely honest thing to want to do business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good thing to wanting to, to make it, mm-hmm. both to make money and to be a success in the marketplace, uh, to get the attention of customers. Uh, that's the very sort of basics. Otherwise, mm-hmm. no jobs would be created. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that I don't sort of I'm not in the business of uh, pointing fingers or, mm-hmm. or blaming companies, because I think for most companies, it's completely open and honest thing that they want to do business and they want to mm-hmm. do great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a limit to everything. And even though... Oh, we, not for them. Have you met them? Well, you know, we, in <laughs> Europe, we would congratulate anyone who's successful. Yeah. And you can grow and you can be you. dominant. And we yeah. have done that. But congratulations stops if we find that you start to misuse mm-hmm. a dominant position. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they're misusing it? 
Well, first of all, we got complaints about it, and then we found evidence, mm-hmm. uh, which makes us think that they actually did it. Mm-hmm. And some of the consequences may, of course, be that the smaller companies may find that it's not any more worthwhile to try to do something new mm-hmm. because they will never be able to show to it to the, the, the customer, right. the potential customer. Because Google and others are in the way. Um, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about that idea, because mm-hmm. in an interview with President Obama, he... He accused the European Union of protectionism and other things. Let's get to that because I think a lot of companies in Silicon Valley also say that and that most of the companies in the U.S. are the most innovative ones and they're being stopped dead in Europe. We're here with Commissioner Margreta Vestager of the European Commission. She's head of the Competition Commission. We're going to take a quick break and we'll get back and talk about that. We'd like to thank Qualcomm for sponsoring today's episode. We're currently reviewing submissions to the Why Wait Lunch Contest that I've been telling you about. But in the meantime, if you listen to this podcast, you love innovation. You're also going to love the Why Wait Invent-Off by Qualcomm. It's an online documentary series in which two teams are challenged to invent something that uses the Internet of Things to save a life. The teams are given a Qualcomm Snapdragon-powered device and a Dragonboard 410C loaded with advanced processing power, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and GPS. And that Dragonboard is the size of a credit card. Check out qualcomm.com slash inventoff to see what they invented. Thanks, Qualcomm. We're back with Margreta Vestager, Europe's Commissioner for Competition, who has been aiming, I hate to use words like that, but at Google, Facebook, Apple, who haven't you? I'm just trying to think. of you, You've been doing some tough uh, uh, actions against them, with Google especially, but also with Facebook and WhatsApp after you all approved the, um, the merger that happened, the use of data and things like that. When I was interviewing President Obama, I asked him about these different actions, and he said that it smacks a little bit of protectionism. How do you answer that? Because I, all the Silicon Valley companies say the same things, that, you, that Europe's being too protective of its own companies and that most of the tech companies – that are competitive these days are U.S. companies. So it's an attempt to slow down inevitably more innovative U.S. companies. How do you react to that? It's not me saying this. No, I I realize, of course, uh, but I think that kind of accusation uh, quite seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, Of bias. Of bias. Mm -hmm. Because one of our fundamental values is that we enforce competition law no matter the size of the company, if you're publicly or privately owned, if you are a EU national or you're owned by someone else uh, in the global marketplace. And when I look into murder control, antitrust, uh, state aid control, I find no uh, U.S. bias. Mm -hmm. That, of course, do not take feelings away. I realize that completely. But if you look at, for instance, in in state aid cases over the last uh, 15 years from 2000 to 2015, well, we've done 150 cases with negative decisions where recovery has been been ordered. And uh, I think only a handful, 2% or something like that, ever involved uh, U.S. businesses. Mm -hmm. Which European businesses that are digital have you gone after, though? Or are these just the big names? Oh, well... You find any kind of business mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I'm talking when, about tech businesses. Yeah, but when you find state aid, uh, I think there is no sort of preferred taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would both find sort of traditional uh, manufacturing businesses just as well as uh, as tech businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't think so. And I think if if uh, it was sort of the era where chemical businesses was those who sort of said the agenda, who was the driving forces in the economy, well, then you would find a lot of German cases, Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, on our our table because a lot of our chemical industry is is German. Mm-hmm. I think it is much more because that it is the, the new industry. It is where you you find sort of the driving forces in our economy, mm-hmm. and that would also traditionally be where you find most antitrust cases. Mm-hmm. Not because they are, are U.S. companies, but because that is where they are. And so you don't feel like you have a bias toward U.S. companies when they shoot back at you saying oh that. no no not at all and i don't i don't find what motive would i have mm-hmm. well very you know recently in britain the brexit you know too much regulation that right now in this election here in the us it's all about too much regulation too much government too much telling people what to do and you can see those forces at work throughout the us economy yeah but you know when when i was a child there was no harry potter and the magic of mm-hmm. uh, of hogwarts it was Laura Ingalls, mm-hmm. which was the series yeah, I Little read over and over and over again. <laughs> and the magic back then. Commissioner Vestier loves America. Go it ahead. was no, but it was the magic back then. It was hard work. It was engaging your community. Mm-hmm. It was it was fairness. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, I think these are very strong values mm-hmm. for everyone to contribute and for everyone to do their. Uh, what they should in uh, in the marketplace in the community. Mm-hmm. So, what do U.S. companies have to do to change? Because they seem to be just opposing you rather strongly, which I think is the first move of any company when they feel themselves under legal attack. Well, well you see, you find in in the accounts of Apple Sales International already back then, I think in two thousand and three, a statement saying that they realize that they pay low, uh, low tax compared to to the Irish tax code as such. And obviously, I think on on that realization, it is a completely uh, honest thing to to place yourself where the tax code is favorable to any company in Ireland. It is twelve and a half percent. I'm the one promoting it the most in, mm-hmm. in these days, mm-hmm. and that, of course, you you can have the the advantages of a, of a favorable tax code. But that is another thing that. Uh, you, as a specific company, mm-hmm. getting a specific advantage, not open to your competitors, to other businesses uh, looking for funding or employees or whatever. And I, I think as as part of the corporate responsibility is to make sure that not only most companies pay their taxes, but that all companies pay their taxes mm-hmm. for reasons of fair competition. Same uh, thing around data. Yes. Now, we've got to finish up because I know you have places to go to important meetings in Washington. But do you agree with the idea that Europe is hostile to U.S. companies? Or how do you put that back? Because I asked that question to President Obama. How do you answer that? You're not hostile? You don't? Well, I think it's very difficult to talk about Europe as one thing. Right. Uh, because you find different sentiments in, in different parts of, uh, of Europe. I come from a country, it is small, I realize that, mm-hmm. of course, but where you find that almost everything uh, American is being embraced. Mm-hmm. And in, in other countries, you find a different level of skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be quite diverse. Uh, what member states uh, you go to, what would be sort of the approach and the appearance. But I think in general, if you boil it down, there is a great appreciation of shared values mm-hmm. and a transatlantic uh, partnership. Are you technical? Do you find yourself, do you use technology? What do you use yourself? iPhone or? Yes, I use iPhone. I have uh, two, one for work and one for private things. And uh, and I try to, you know, stay on top of things. But uh, having uh, young daughters, I realize that uh, it may be out of reach to mm-hmm. be as, uh, what is it that they call it? 
um, native yeah. uh, in uh, in our digital world. Do you use world. Facebook and WhatsApp and other things like that? Uh, I use uh, Facebook, but not at all as much as I use Twitter. Twitter is my favorite uh, media. Uh-oh, are you worried about what's going to happen to it? No, not really. Yeah, well, we'll see. Wait, what if they get bought by Google or yeah. something like that? Perhaps you might have something to say about it. Um, and your daughter, same thing, they use... Oh, yes, they do. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, they're breathing through their phones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, an, it's an, I think, to a large degree, all the bad things being said, it's a great enabler because it allows you to, uh, to stay in touch and, uh, and to have sometimes very different relationship mm-hmm. uh, than we used to have uh, back then when I was uh, their age. All right. And last question, when did these actions end? They just continue through until there's either a settlement or a legal case? Well, it depends very much on, on the instrument. Right. If it's an antitrust case, uh, we can do basically two kind of decisions, either a prohibition with a fine, mm-hmm. or we can do binding commitments. And as long as the company then honor those commitments, there will be no fine. If it's uh, a merger uh, issue, well, we always, of course, try to clear a merger because mm-hmm. we want to enable business community to, to move on. If that's if the merger is threatening sort of the, the competitive environment, they may offer uh, divestments to facilitate competition. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to, to state aid, well, then, unfortunately, sometimes we have these negative decisions where the state then have to recover uh, unpaid taxes or, or grants or interests uh, if, it's a, it's, right. if it's a very uh, favorable loan. So the instruments vary, uh, and they're very different. They all have the same purpose, uh, to enable fair competition. All right. Thank you so much, Commissioner Vestager, for coming in today. I know you're really busy. It was and a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much. Thanks to Commissioner Vestager. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, AOL co-founder Steve Case, and the geography of genus author Eric Weiner, just to name a few. Don't miss this week's first episode with John Hankey, which came out on Monday. We talked about Google, Pokemon Go, and the future of augmented reality. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.